Mecham Auctions, the world's largest collector car auction company, returns to Indy with Dana Mecham's 37th Original Spring Classic, May 10th through the 18th at the Indiana State Fairground. 3,000 muscle cars, Corvettes, exotics, and more. Broadcast on Motor Trend TV and streaming live on Max. From avid collectors to those new to the Mecham experience, we welcome everyone. Register to bid now at Mecham.com. So more and more, conversations come up involving our children. And for a lot of us, it's stunning that these conversations are even taking place and that we have to have the conversation of, hey, Shouldn't we be in the business of protecting children? It is societies that are failed. It is ideologies that are backwards that go about attacking children. The idea of utilizing children to engage bombings in Israel uh, from Hamas or Hezbollah, what they do with children and child brides in other nations. Those are the things that appall us. Yet here we are in the United States watching things happening with children that are appalling us, and there are people saying, oh, you're just a bigot. Oh, I guess you're not educated. Oh, you're just a parent. You're a domestic terrorist. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. David Marcus joins us right now. You can read his columns over at Fox News. His latest book, Charade, The COVID Lies That Crushed a Nation. You can find that at Amazon.com. His latest over at Fox News, Time to Defund NPR over porn for kids. And, and David, it's good to have you here. There's some things uh, in that piece that I'm not allowed to quote uh, on radio. But let's talk about what it is that NPR did and why you, I mean, this has been a chorus that's gone on for a while. While you're saying, why are you saying NPR doesn't deserve any federal money? Uh, thanks for having me, uh, Tony. I, look, there's, there's the, the, the list of reasons why NPR shouldn't get federal money is like a CBS receipt. But um, this was particularly egregious. It centers on a book called Gender Queer, which is a graphic novel that, you know, as you mentioned, it, it's difficult to describe this in PG terms, but it has images, very graphic images of sex acts such as oral sex and, and things like that involving sort of underage characters. It, it it is very close to, if not pornography, and it's targeted at kids as young as 12. So NPR decided to give the author of the book a platform on their website to basically defend the work, um, which you know she claims is being her book is being banned and it's being pulled from library shelves. So she wrote this "woe is me" self-congratulatory essay about how you know her her book is being banned without ever mentioning the pictures. Without ever mention, all she says is that there was an angry woman at a at a Virginia school board meeting, and after that, it all kind of snowballed. It never addressed the very legitimate concerns that parents have about this kind of sexualized and sexual imagery being in front of their kids. And no editor at any legitimate news outlet should ever let that happen. If if, if when she comes back and says, "Here's my defense," and doesn't address the problem at all. You can't run that because it's not news, it's propaganda. And when we talk about this idea of banning books, I've discussed it on the shows before, there's a big difference between saying a book shouldn't be allowed to be printed in a public library or even sold versus saying, hey, we as parents think this book is inappropriate for our nine-year-old and all nine-year-olds. 
Yeah, I mean, of course. And this is why, you know, this author in the essay compares her own work to To Kill a Mockingbird, Mice and Man. And, and we do. And rightfully in our society, you know, we, we kind of shiver a little when we hear the idea of a book being banned. But you're exactly right. I mean, you can't open up a store selling Playboy magazine to 10-year-olds, right? We have, we draw these lines within our society and it's perfectly reasonable and necessary for us to discuss where those lines should be. And as you pointed out, the left won't let us do that. When you even try to have this very legitimate conversation, they say you're homophobic, you're transphobic, you're a bigot. And it's because they know they can't win this argument. Talking to David Marcus, read his columns over at Fox News. The book Charade, The COVID Lies That Crushed a Nation. You can find that at Amazon.com. Um, your discussion about saying, hey, no more federal funding for NPR is based on the idea that NPR knew what they were doing when they allowed this conversation about this book to take place we as taxpayers shouldn't be a part of this, but the desire to, to defund NPR has been going on for well over a decade. What, what in your view, could actually pull the trigger to make that happen? I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful because of the events that we saw last week. Where, where And look, I was very pro-McCarthy. I, I was frustrated at times with what you know the, the 20 who were opposed to McCarthy were doing. But we did see not only democracy in action, we saw a GOP that looks like maybe it's going to have a spine. As you say, the GOP has been talking about this for 30 years. They haven't pulled the trigger. So I'm hopeful that just as Donald Trump moved the, the, the American embassy to Jerusalem when Republicans had said for 30 years they were going to do it, that, that Republicans can use this opportunity to, to make good on these promises. Because... NPR is a problem. State-run news media is always a problem. Um, it, it always serves as a mouthpiece for the elites. And look, let them have their fundraisers and, you know, people in Martha's Vineyard, you know, who listen to it in their Subarus can send them money. Don't make taxpayers in the rest of the country do it. This also falls into a bit of trend going on. And I know that you follow uh, the, these kinds of things that we're seeing this more and more push in this desire to say that kids can do this and kids should be aware of this. And it's allowed to sh uh, it's OK to show kids the other this move to give children agency is clearly a move that has people utilizing the term groomer. And I don't know where you are in the term groomer. I know that you do a lot of cultural commentary, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it. But you take your story, what you're writing about with NPR, and now connect that, if, if you can, is there a connection to the stories about how it's okay to engage uh, surgeries for children who want to change their gender? After all, there's a lot of money in it, according to Vanderbilt University and others. And then this latest, where the American Academy of Pediatrics has come out uh, to say that, you know, uh, surgeries for 12 and 13-year-olds who are overweight, that's the way to go. There's a... Am, am I off base that there is this serious push for children to have agency and therefore to decide all sorts of things, including their medical world and then who they love? Does this groomer conversation all connect or am I off base? 
No, you're not, you're not off base at all. And I'll say this about the, the groomer term, right? And that was a term that was getting people like kicked off Twitter until very recently for even just uttering it, right? I, I don't use the term because it's not particularly useful for me in, in the way that I work, but I have no issue with anybody who does use the term because let's remember how it came into the parlance most recently. When Ron DeSantis was trying to clean up the Florida school system and stop telling, you know, kindergartners that they can choose their own gender, the mainstream media and the Democrats started calling it the don't say gay bill, which was a lie. The word gay didn't even appear in the bill. They just flat out lied. And what happened was the press secretary, the then press secretary for Ron DeSantis, woman named Christina Pushaw, uh, who does some really phenomenal work, she said, okay, fine. You want to call this the don't say gay bill, we're going to call it the anti-grooming bill. That, that was where the groomer thing, this was several months ago, uh, almost like five or six months ago now, I think. And look, that's entirely appropriate. If one side is going to just blatantly lie and, and use this kind of disingenuous hyperbole to describe the other side, the other side has to be allowed to do it too. Now look, if the left wants a detente, if they want to say, we'll stop calling it the don't say gay bill, you guys stop calling it grooming, great, then we can have a real conversation. Until then, I, got, I don't have an issue with it. And, and of course it's all connected. Of, of course the idea of like kids accessing porn and kids choosing their own gender and, 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 and kids having you know, sex change operations, yes, of, of course this is all connected to a really disturbing new way of looking at childhood. It's, it's the belief that childhood shouldn't exist. Well, I mean, that's, it's, it's erasing the line between childhood and adulthood. I've argued that it's erasing the line between the parents and the child because if the child isn't, is capable of making their own decisions, the role of the parent is insignificant. It doesn't have to exist. But we see these things in these silos, but it's the connecting of the dots that sometimes people have a hard time doing because they, they stay in these silos. Well, this is about obesity, and this is about trans, and this is about uh, freedom of speech when we talk about banning books. They're actually all interconnected subjects. Yes, and, and this movement is, is, is retrogressive because our idea of childhood is, is, is relatively new. It really emerged at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century with the Romantic movement, with writers like Rousseau. And, you know, not to get too much in the weeds, but this idea that childhood... Feel free to get in the weeds, David. We don't, yeah, we don't yeah, shy away from crap. <laughs> you know, childhood um, was suddenly considered to be this distinct entity. It had to do with the idea of, like, getting kids outside, getting kids playing sports, right? This is where we saw the, the movement to end child labor. We said, no, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds shouldn't be in the coal, the coal mines, right? 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds shouldn't be getting married. We, we made these decisions, and they were very, very good decisions for society that allowed, by the age of 18 or 19 or 20, people to grow into adulthood having experienced this full childhood. We're ripping that away now. I have a 12-year-old. I don't, my 12-year-old's not an adult. I don't want my 12-year-old acting like an adult. And, and so it, it really is a deep problem in our society. And I think part of the problem may well be that a lot of the people who are making these decisions don't have a 12-year-old. You know, and, and they have the occasional conversation with their niece and nephew and say, oh, boy, 
you know, these kids are smart. They're tough. Think back to COVID. How many times did we hear about masking and, and school closures? Oh, kids are tougher than you think. Guess what? They're not. And in fact, we now see that they're suffering because of those decisions that were made. Has anybody reached out to you regarding your piece at Fox News, talking to David Marcus, uh, columnist at Fox News, author of the book Charade, The COVID Lies That Crushed a Nation, get that at Amazon.com, regarding your your piece, whether it, it be um, teachers, or you know, not, certainly not every teacher agrees, but teachers screaming at you and calling you uh, a, a book burner, or many uh, legislators saying this is something we should work on. Has anybody connected with you you know I, every, every article gets some people you know calling me names and stuff on on social media so i mean that certainly happened i think interestingly nobody makes the positive argument here right no i've, I've yet to hear anyone on the left say okay here's why it's a good idea here's why we really need 12 year olds to be looking at, at at these graphic sexual images so nobody makes that argument. They just call you a bit. If they say, oh, you're exaggerating, you're a bigot. No. So no, no, nobody's done that. I have, I have had a lot of positive feedback, including from um, the woman in Virginia who cited in the piece, who was the angry mother who, who kind of, you know, kicked this all off. She's reached out to me. And yeah, I've spoken to some, I've spoken to some people um, uh, in, in congressional offices, people who I, I, I sort of regularly talk to. And this is definitely on their radar, but everybody has to a- approach this more aggressively. And I think the model here really is Ron DeSantis, who not only has had the courage, uh, as did President Trump, the courage to, to address these things and not be scared of being called a bit, but is actually taking very serious action on the ground to change these. And, and that's, that's really positive. You know, we before I let you go, a question that has always moved me in, in the back of my head as I go through these stories. How in the world did this fight about children become political? Because it would be hard to believe that all people on the political left believe that children should somehow be treated as adults. Children can make their own medical decisions. They can make their own decisions about who they love. And I meant that in in terms of deciding their their sexual futures or sexual presence. This has become a political fight, right versus left. It doesn't make any sense that it would be a political fight because we're talking about children. You have a you have a take on how it became political? Yes, uh, it became political essentially because nobody agreed to any of this, right? Like I, I saw something today where like somebody was trying to register in New Jersey their kid or kindergarten, and part of the form was gender identity, kindergarten, right? No, no, we never vote on that. We never agreed as a, as a society that, that, that this is a thing, that, that, that any of this is real. There is, an, there is an institutional aristocracy at work in the United States, in our universities, you know, in, within the deep state, within the bureaucracies, uh, certainly within the teachers' unions. And the, the political left has a tendency, just as they did during COVID, to defer to these experts and say, oh, well, I mean, Harvard Education Review said X, Y, Z. Like, who am I to disagree with that, right? Exact same thing. Well, Dr. Fauci says, you know, you got to put seven masks on. So I think, I guess we better put seven masks on. And so I think that's how it became political, because American conservatives are far more skeptical of experts, 
far more jealous of their individual liberty. And I think the left tendency to defer to this expert class has created a lot of these problems. And boy, I hope they're waking up to it. David Marcus, find his work at foxnews.com. The book that you can get at amazon.com, Charade, The COVID Lies That Crushed a Nation. David Marcus, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz.